Good morning. Welcome to Celebration Church. Let's all stand together as our campuses join with us over in Appleton and Stevens Point. And let's recite together the Apostles' Creed. This is our statement of faith. This is who we are and what we believe at Celebration Church. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who for us and for our salvation was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the fellowship of believers, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Good to have you with us this morning. Merry Christmas. I got my Christmas bow tie on this morning. Got my red shoes on. And my ho-ho-ho socks. Ready to go. Don't forget our Christmas Eve service tomorrow, uh, 3 o'clock at all our campuses, and then there's an additional 5 p.m. service here at the uh, Green Bay campus. This morning, I want to uh, share with you from the scriptures about why Jesus came. We're celebrating that he came, but why did he come? <laughs> we read about it in Matthew, the first chapter. It says, but after he had considered this, the he they're talking about is Joseph, Joseph was engaged to Mary. They found out she was pregnant. Everyone is freaking out, as you well can imagine. Uh, I don't think anyone considered that she was immoral. They probably figured someone had forced themselves on her. I'm sure it was quite a traumatic time for the entire family. She was trying to explain to them about the angel. And I don't think anybody was buying that story. Certainly Joseph wasn't. And he says, you know, I, I need to get out of this deal. He said, after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name, give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. That is why Jesus came into the earth. Uh, as fascinating as the birth and stuff was and amazing as his life was, the whole point was the sacrifice that he came to give on the cross when he died for the sins of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All of this has been about forgiving people of their sins. We saw it throughout the life of Jesus. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day saw it. It really irritated them. We pick up uh, one of the more dramatic accounts in John's gospel, the eighth chapter. It says, at dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. He sat down to teach them. Well, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman uh, caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. You can imagine the horror she feels, the humiliation, the failure, uh, to be publicly dragged out over this situation she was caught up in. And they grabbed her and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. I've always found this fascinating. Where was the guy? One cannot be caught in the act alone. 
It's interesting how they let him off the hook. But not the girl. No, no, no. We got to humiliate her. So they said this woman was caught in the act of adultery in the law. Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis of accusing him. What trap? See, they knew one of the things about Jesus. He was always letting people off the hook, and it irritated them. It tends to irritate very religious people with their long ecclesiastical noses looking down at everyone else. And all the filthy sinners and people who don't do things right. And if there's one thing that irritates religious people is when sinners are let off the hook. Shouldn't do it. So they thought, okay, what are you going to do now, Jesus? We caught this lady in the act. There's no question. Her guilt is well established. The law says we should stone her to death. What are you going to do now? But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Now, it doesn't say what he was writing. Uh, some have guessed. Oh, one of the more fascinating ones is that he was writing down other people's sins. You know, you know, judgmental, critical, gluttony, selfishness. Who knows? He kept on bugging him. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And he straightened up and he said to them, Well, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he stooped down again and started writing on the ground. Well, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, undoubtedly, because they had the most amount of sins to deal with, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, sir. Now, we read the words, no one, sir. I'm pretty sure this was, these were words pushed through tears and humiliation. And I have to sense that Jesus could tell that in her heart she was very sorry. Now, there's a difference between being sorry for what you do and getting caught for what you did. A lot of people are sorry, but they're sorry because they got caught. And if they hadn't gotten caught, things would still be okay. They'd keep doing whatever they're doing. But clearly, this woman felt very badly for her situation. And when she should have been humiliated beyond recognition, and even in this case, because it was so strict back in those days, even to suffer the death penalty, Jesus said, well, I don't condemn you either. Go now and leave your life of sin. He lets her off the hook. Not only did we see this in the New Testament, in the life of Jesus, actually, we see this throughout the Old Testament. Now, I say, well, I don't know, Old Testament, a lot of strict you know, consequences for sin. And, and indeed, there were. But even in the Old Testament, you still see this sense that God wants to forgive people. This is shown most dramatically in the story of Jonah. Remember Jonah and the fish now? What happens is Jonah, God comes to Jonah and tells him to go to Nineveh to preach because they're very wicked people and he's going to destroy them if they don't repent. Well, Jonah doesn't want to go and he hops on a boat heading to Tarshish. He wants to get out of town. 
Now, the children's version of this is often what we hear so much in our own heads because, you know, they say, well, you know, Jonah was embarrassed to go preach and he didn't want that. No, 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 no. He had no problem preaching. He didn't care about that stuff. He knew what was going on with Nineveh. Now, it was prophesied that Nineveh, because of Israel's sin, God was going to bring Nineveh down on their throats. And he didn't want that to happen. And when he heard that God was angry at them and was going to judge them and punish them, he thought, awesome. This is great. I don't want to go tell them to repent. It's kind of like if you know the Minnesota Vikings are coming to town. And some of their key players are really, really sick. And you have the cure. You might wait till Monday to get it to them. You know what I'm saying? So this is what, uh, what they're dealing with here. He is not running because he's afraid or embarrassed to talk or whatever stuff has been said about this. You've got to read the whole story, find out the whole facts. He did not want to go because he didn't want to preach to them in the chance that they would repent. Anyway, he's like, I'm getting out of town. He hops on this boat. I'm sure God knew all this was going to happen. He hops on this boat. He takes off heading to Tarshish. And these sailors, now these, you know, these are not girly man boaters like myself. These are hardcore men who've been raised on, their, on the water all their lives. They've been through all kinds of storms, all kinds of situations. And the weirdest, creepiest storm pops up. And they are terrified. And it dawns on them that something is unusual. This is weird. This is crazy. This is not normal. They had a sense of the supernatural. And indeed, it was the hand of God stirring up the pot. And Jonah goes, it's me. It's me. I'm running from God. I don't want to go do this. Just throw me in the ocean. And they didn't really want to do it, but they said, well, he wants to go. Let's see if it's him. And sure enough, they throw him over and calm comes over. Well, well, this guy's dead now. But what we read is that God sends this giant fish, it says. I'm sure it wasn't a walleye or something, undoubtedly a whale, and swallows the guy. And he's in the belly of this whale for Three days, and people say, well, how could anyone possibly live through something like that? Actually, if you look at it uh, and the way he prays his prayer afterwards, uh, the implication is very strong that he dies and that God brings him back to life again. Jesus talked about this. He says, just like Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, I too will be in the earth for three days before I rise again. And uh, so anyway, eventually... The fish grounds itself on the beach and belches up <laughs> Jonah. And guess where they are? Nineveh. <laughs> he wouldn't plan it on this. And the uh, Bible says seaweed was wrapped around his head. And you can imagine how pasty and clammy and slimy he is at this point after basting in the juices for three days. And he comes out. Now, people have speculated because eventually he goes to Nineveh and he starts preaching. Now, he doesn't want to preach to them, but he does. And, and he is incredibly effective. How can that be? Well, put it in context. The guys on the beach in Nineveh, they're all hanging out, doing whatever they're doing. 
And this whale comes up and bleh, out comes this guy. And he stands up. Ah! I mean, like, oh, man, he looks like a zombie. He's got seaweed around his head. He's all slimy. Bleh. You know, this, is, this has been a rough few days. You know what I'm saying? And they're like, so he starts talking, and, and they're listening. All right? Now they're listening. Undoubtedly, God knew this is what was going to happen. Well, the king hears about Slime Boy coming out of the sea. And uh, what does he got to say? He says, God's going to destroy this nation because uh, one, one of the sins that it mentions, they were an incredibly violent culture. And he says, well, we need to cry out to this God so that he will not punish us. And he calls for a fast. He says, we're all going to, nobody's going to eat for the, for the day. Don't even feed the animals. Put on sackcloth. I mean, let's cry out to this God. Maybe, maybe he will change his mind. And of course, God does. Why? Because God loves to let people off the hook. Anyway, Jonah now is mad as a hornet. And we pick it up in the fourth chapter. To Jonah, this all seemed very wrong. What was wrong? Letting him off the hook. I want these people to die because they're going to come and attack us. And he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said? See, now the thing with the Bible, in the Old Testament in particular, the way they tell stories, they don't fill in all the details until you get to the end, which to me is a sucky way to tell a story. I'm more Western culture. Give us details as we go along. Let the drama build. Dun, 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 dun. No, you don't really find out until later. We think he just doesn't want to preach. No, he tells God in the beginning. We don't find this out until the end. Or he says, God, this is what I said to you when I was still at home. That is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew. And then he accuses God of this terrible thing. I knew that you are gracious. You're a compassionate God. You're slow to anger. You're bound in love. You love people. A God who relents from sending calamity. I knew you'd let him off the hook. And he's mad. Because religious people don't like it. <laughs> Like it shouldn't let people off the hook. Should humiliate people and make them pay for their sins. But not God. He was so depressed. He says, Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. He wanted to die. He was so mad. For three days he preached to that city. The whole city came to repentance, and he was so ticked off about it because he wanted them to be destroyed. God loves to let people off the hook. Jesus came to die on that cross so that through his blood, his sacrifice, we would have forgiveness of sins. He knew that sin needed to be punished. He says, nobody can handle it. I can do it. I'll do it. And he takes the punishment we all deserve. And we see this throughout the scripture. God loves it when we cover sins and failures. We read about this in Genesis, the ninth chapter, in the account of Noah. Now, you know about Noah in the flood, and uh, you know, after the flood and stuff, and they start over again. Life starts over again with a small family. And, um, and by the way, I don't know if you caught this in the news several weeks ago. 
some DNA experts were going through and they came to the conclusion that if you follow all the DNA, it could all be traced back to a handful of people thousands of years ago. Hmm. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? They don't understand how that's possible. Read the book. Anyway. Amen. So they start all over again. And uh, Noah, you know, they're planting and stuff like that. It says here, now Noah was a man of the soil, a farmer. And he proceeded to plant a vineyard. So he gets this nice vineyard. Who knows how long that took? And these guys live very long lives. But he plants this vineyard. And comes time for the vineyard. And he takes the grapes, makes some wine. It says, when he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Now, I am not one given too much drink. And I'm not exactly sure how much drink you got to drink before you think... I really should get naked. And uh, so apparently he is completely hammered out of his ever-loving mind. And it only seemed appropriate at this point we should shed whatever we have on. And you know, I was just talking to someone the other day. You guys are from Wisconsin? Yeah, yeah, we're from Wisconsin. He says, yeah, I hear there's a lot of drinking up there. I said, well, there was a recent survey that came out described the 20 drunkest cities in America. Ten of them were from Wisconsin. <laughs> Green Bay was number one. <laughs> Always want to be good at something, right? But even then, I don't see a lot of people running around naked, drunk out of their ever-loving mind. And this is Noah. He is absolutely plastered. And he passes out <laughs> naked on the floor of his tent. Well, his son, Ham, here's a name for a kid. Hey, Ham. <laughs> yeah, don't use the Old Testament to get a name for your kid. I got to tell you, it's just weird names in here. Ham, who's the father of Canaan, he comes in and he sees Pops. Pops is buck naked. There he is, buck naked, drunk as a skunk. And he goes out and he tells his two brothers outside. You guys, you got to see this. The old man is plastered. He's drunk as a skunk, and he's as naked as a jaybird. You got to come check it out. Look at what he did. But the other two sons, Shem and Japheth, took a garment and laid it across their shoulders, and then they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body and their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. I was reading this the other day. I thought, man, what kind of person am I? What kind of people are we? Do we cover people when they make mistakes? Or are we like the first son? Check it out. Look at what he did. Look at this. These are stop. Shouldn't be happening. Then we talk and we gossip about people. Of course, we make it look very spiritual. We say the word pray. Yeah, we need, we need to pray for Fred over here. You know, got a little bit of a drinking problem. You know. Beats his wife, I heard. I don't know, but we, we should pray. They're just gossiping. You don't think it's gossiping because we're praying about it. 
People go around and tell you stuff. They don't really know the facts on about it all. Well, this is what I heard. This is what I heard about this. Oh, we need to be praying about this. I heard such a thing. We're exposing. Oh, we're so good at exposing stuff. I'm telling you, if there's one thing about people who get very religious and very self-righteous is they become like ham, a bunch of walking bacon heads. Ham, bacon, think it through. Look what he did. We gotta expose it. When Noah woke up, he blessed the two sons and he cursed Ham and his descendants. Ouch. In 1 Peter, the fourth chapter, verse 8, we read these words. Peter says, Above all, love each other deeply because love does what? It covers. What past are you covered? But what kind of sin? I mean, there, there's some sins that, you know, there's only so much you can have. No, it, it covers over a, a multitude of sins. One of the surest ways you can tell that you are walking in love towards people is you're willing to cover their mistakes. Not make excuses. And the Bible talks about confronting when you see someone doing something wrong. And that. But there again, to try to make peace between you and your brother, trying to Catch him before it gets to the point where the whole church has to know. But people don't like to cover, they like to be like ham. Look at that. Look at that. You know, there's uh, the first two kings of Israel. First one was called Saul, the second one was called David. David, we all remember. Not a lot of people remember Saul. But God. Uh, rejected Saul as king, but he didn't reject David as king. And I want you to think about this a little bit. Here was Saul's sin. God told Saul to go into a city, destroy the city, and then destroy all the animals too. You say, well, that doesn't sound fair. Poor animals. Well, why would they do that? But because that was to destroy their wealth. It was part of the punishment. Because, you know, it's like going into a bank and emptying your bank accounts out. I mean, that, that was where their wealth was in, in livestock. So destroy all that. So Saul goes to battle and he wins the battle and he brings the cattle and stuff back. And God says, hey, what's, what's with the cows? Well, look, Leah, look, I know, but, uh, you know, I, I thought I'd bring them back and, and we'd have this fabulous worship service. You know, we'll sacrifice them to the Lord and we'll... Worship you, O oh God. Ooh. The Bible says God rejected Saul as king. Now, I got to tell you, it seems like a fairly minor offense. Well, no, pastor, the Bible says, you know, rebellion is as the sin of which. Oh, no, no, I get it. I, I understand God's perspective in concerning Saul's behavior, but I'm talking about our perspective. Seriously, it seems like a technicality. So he didn't kill all the cows. Oh, he's going to come. We'll just have a great worship service and eat some steak afterwards. You know, it's really not that big of a deal. Not to us. Now, David, David, the one who killed Goliath, the great king, wrote so many of those beautiful psalms. One day, the Bible says he's standing on top of his castle, and he looks down, and he sees a lady taking a bath, which, by the way, ladies, curtains. Anyway, he says, Hochi Mama, look at that. Whew. Gotta check that out. 
He said, man, I want to meet this lady. They set it up. He's the king. You know, he's got great power. He seduces the girl. Starts having a sexual affair with the girl. Gets her pregnant. Freaks out. And then murders her husband. Now, the way he murders him, he was in the army. They were in this big battle against the city. And he told his general, said, listen, I want you to take this guy and take his group of guys and put him up real close to the wall and then pull back and leave him exposed. So not only did the guy die, the husband, but all the men with him. He was responsible for the death of multiple men. And as soon as it was announced the guy had died, then he marries Beth. Sheba. This is bad. All right. This is lust, lying, adultery, and murder. But God does not reject David as king. Now, the main difference is that when the prophet confronted Saul, Saul made excuses. When the prophet confronted David, David repented and asked God to forgive him, and God lets him off the hook. Say, well, his family suffered. Oh, yeah, well, there's, there's consequences to bad decisions, but God does not reject David as king. Now, I want you to think about this a little bit. Our kind of church we call, we're evangelical churches, basically not traditional Catholics or Lutherans or whatever. We're an evangelical church, and, and there's people who watch me all over the world, literally, on, on the internet. And those of you who come from evangelical churches, you know it. You know it. All of you know it. Your church, your elder board, your Bible study group, uh, your denomination, whether it's Baptist or Assemblies of God or whatever, you know, all y'all know, that if we would have been in charge of Israel at that time, we would have kept Saul as king and removed David. Saul, no big deal. Who cares? Technicality, okay, probably should have, but at least we have a great worship service and had some great stakes. David, how do you begin to let that go? We can't let that go. This is how far we are from the heart of God. I'm absolutely convinced our churches don't get this. We would have removed David in a heartbeat. That adulterer. Look what he did. Saul, who cares about this? No big deal. Look, what God does kicks out Saul and he keeps David. Now, I don't know how many of you follow all this religious nonsense that goes on around, but uh, a year or two ago, whatever, that, that big church down in Chicago, you know, Willow Creek. Big expose in the paper, Chicago Tribune or whatever, that he had made some inappropriate comments that was said to some women and had actually reached out and touched a woman's forearm. Her forearm. And their elder boy all gathered quickly to remove him from office. He's one of the most dynamic leaders in Christianity. He's no longer there. Now, people say, well, we've heard later other things came. Yeah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. I've heard pastors say, well, there's some other stuff we heard about later. No, 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 no. Forget the other stuff. 
Whether that's even true or not, you don't know. They were removing him just because of the other stuff. Some inappropriate accounts touching someone's arm. You, are you kidding me? I had one pastor, well, you know, we, we got to really protect the, the ministry. You know, it's just a bunch of nonsense. We are ecclesiastical, judgmental people, and we won't admit it. It's got to stop. It's got to stop. You know, and I said this in the last verse, I'll probably regret saying this, and I'll probably regret saying it now. You know, the whole Catholic Church thing, you know, with the priests that were abusive to these young men and stuff. And they think the church was trying to hide something because they're afraid of what they weren't trying to hide it. The Catholics don't care. The Pope, you know, they could care less what other people think. They don't sit around and take polls. Now, they didn't handle it right because you can't let a predator still loose and, and, and someone who is unrepentant and still act, we would act on that even as evangelicals, and that's fine. There are some pastors I've talked to who've been caught in sins, and they say they like doing it. They don't, they don't going to stop. Well, yeah, those guys got to leave. But even if someone gets, I'm telling, they're pastors. I know pastors who've gotten fired because they just admitted that they were struggling in their marriage. Much less if he has a porn problem. Forget it. If he does something stupid and inappropriate, man, his life is over. Because we would keep Saul. We'd love Saul. We'd put him in charge of our denomination. Pastor Saul, we all love Pastor Saul. He's a good man. He's got a problem with cows, you know. Doesn't kill them all, but you know. The reason the Catholic Church didn't do it is because they have this concept. It's called for forgiveness. You see, they understand. Someone confesses their sins, you forgive them. Again, the way they handled it wasn't right. They know that now, but at least they were pointing in the right direction. Man, evangelicals, we are so far from that. It's, it breaks my heart. Why are we so quick to destroy people's lives? Well, look what they did. Look what David did. We're not quick to let people off. We want to drag them out. We want Humiliate them. No, you know what? We don't do that here. We don't do that. There's people in this church that have done some really nasty things and y'all never heard a word about it. I've been in churches when people got caught in such a way, they bring them before the entire congregation. I don't know if you've ever been in services like that. It's horrifying. You know, uh, brother so-and-so here was caught, you know, doing something inappropriate. And he's up here. He needs to ask everyone to forgive him, you know. Just humiliate him and his family and everybody else. We don't do that nonsense. Amen. You know what we do? We, we cover people's faults. We cover their mistakes. We cover them. No, we challenge them. You need to stop. And if they're willing to stop, if they don't stop, now I got an issue with you. But we need to have hearts. Why? Because all of this, everything we sing about, talk about, celebrate, is the fact because he lets us off the hook. If we'll just, and I don't know about you, but I need to be let off the hook. It's good to know that if we'll simply come to him, that's his heart. That's what he wants to do. I'm going to ask all our ushers to come forward to the campuses, get ready to serve communion.
as part of the service where we're going to take communion. This is when we reflect on the fact that Jesus' body was broken for us willingly. He gave him up as a sacrifice. His blood was shed so that we could have forgiveness of sins. And here's the deal this morning. If you have never truly surrendered your life to Christ, or maybe you've done some bad things that you haven't repented from, I'm telling you, if you'll just turn to him and turn away from your wrong, he will wipe your slate clean. So I've done some really bad things. You know, I, I, I love, you know, people come to our churches, some are ex-cons and stuff like that. We try not to point them out. <laughs> some people have done some really bad things. And these people say, man, I just, I can't imagine Jesus has forgiven me. But they're so grateful. And you get other people who, you know, very religious, and they don't think they've done anything wrong ever. I don't need to be forgiven. I'm a pretty good guy. I gave $30 to the United Way. Don't realize we are all in a mess. We all have sins. We all have troubles. We need God to wipe the slate clean. The good news this morning, what we're celebrating about Christmas is Jesus came to wipe the slates clean, to let us off the hook. I'm going to pray a prayer. I'm going to ask you all to pray this prayer with me this morning. If you will mean this from the bottom of your heart, maybe this is the first time you've even heard a message like this. If you'll come to Jesus and say, God, forgive me. He'll wipe your slate clean. He'll wipe your slate clean. And then you join with us in communion as we celebrate this wonderful gift called forgiveness. Let's pray this prayer together. Say, dear Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. And that you love me so much, you went to the cross and you took my punishment. I ask you to come into my life to forgive me of my sins and to wipe my slate clean. Amen.